I want you to turn to two places to begin with, John chapter 17 and Ephesians chapter 4, where we finished last week. John chapter 17, our subject is union with Christ. Some would call union relationship. It would mean the same thing. Union means oneness. It has to do with the idea of being together. It's not God agreeing with us. It is us agreeing with God. We don't know what to agree with unless we read his word, which is about him. So union, togetherness, is what God wants in his church. But he'll never have it in a church unless he has it with you first. Amen? Christians can talk about relationship with God. You can use those terms and talk about them until you're old people. But if you don't have it by experience, you don't have it. A relationship with God is not academic. It's not mental. It's not reading verses on the Bible and then saying, well, I agree with that, therefore I relate to God. You have knowledge, you don't have a relationship. A relationship is when you yield to that knowledge and you let what he said becomes your way of life. It's you doing what he wants. It's yielding to him. It's the surrender of your will and your life and your heart to God. And you draw nigh to him because he has drawn nigh to you. He brings you to himself. He begins to unfold into you the mysteries of his word because you can't know it any other way. He begins to show you things and stir you up in things to take you out of a complacent, blah Christian life into something that has meaning and purpose so that you're not just living down here with religious attachments, but you're living with purpose, spiritual-minded purpose. And if you don't have that, I say this kindly and I say it lovingly, you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're not in union with him. It's a life you live. Now, in John chapter 17, concerning this relationship, verse 20 through 23, Jesus' prayer, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That would include us. That, this is the purpose, this is where we're going, that they all may be one, me and you. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And then where we're going today, just in a minute. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What a statement. Can it be? Can such a thing be realized in ordinary people like us in this life. Can it be true? Now, in Ephesians 4, we finished there last week. I asked you to go there. Ephesians chapter 4, we start at verse 11. You got to have ministry, anointed, sent ministry, something that God sends. That's the only way we can realize verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, putting the saints in right order to the edifying of the church and ministering and so forth. And we got to have that active and operating in our assembly before we can get to verse 13 because verse 13 begins with the word till. Till we all come. So we're going somewhere. Whatever God is doing, however you define it, it must be this. That the work that God is doing 
is a work of bringing his people together. Now, he said, till we, not until you and, and I, but he said, till we all come. We and all is more than me and you. But it's till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. Then he describes it to the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ. Nothing else can mean more to you than that. Nothing. He said in Luke 14, if you put anything before that, you cannot be his disciple. Well, no wonder Jesus said it's a narrow way and very few will find it because you have to give up a lot of things that he must judge in order to be what he wants. What he wants you to be, what he wants you to do. But the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, a perfect man, can this be? Well, certainly it can be. Because he goes on to say, if we don't have that, then we're going to be tossed around the rest of our life. Remember the next verse said, we no longer be tossed about like children, you know, every wind of doctrine and so forth. Because where we're actually going is verse 16. This is what makes us as a body of believers, as a group that has come together, all different kinds of backgrounds from this part of the country, that part of the country, as I've said already twice. This particular assembly here is different than any that I know of because we all came here from somewhere else. There have been other churches like that. They're not in existence anymore, but so many of us came from so many places with so many different backgrounds, so many different ideas, and so many different ways about us. You know, down in the South, Kentucky, or the Southern people have a different way of doing things and maybe people from the East or the West or the North. And it isn't easy to become one. We have so many opinions about the way things ought to be done or who ought to wear or that shouldn't be done. And we're always saying, well, I'll tell you what, you know, I don't think they ought to do that. They shouldn't do that. Why they and we have so many things that interfere with what God is doing. I mean, this is the way we have grown up. This is the way we have been allowed to be. And then God saves us and puts us together. And these things really, really hinder what God is doing. Our minds have so many ideas that are different from God's. We have so many problems with so many people. We don't like that. We don't like that. He's too loud. She's too quiet. He makes too much racket. He preaches too long. We have all these little things that we just allow to dominate our thinking, and it does interfere with our relationship with each other. Now, concerning that relationship, remember, if you were here last week, remember these two stones here? We got that out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He said, you also as living stones are being built together. So it's God's building. He's putting things together. He said, we are being built together. He said in Ephesians 2, 22, he said that God is building us together into a holy habitation of God. He's going to abide in it. He's going to express himself in it manifest himself in various ways. I don't think he's going to appear in some form, but he's going to be active and busy where he is allowed to put his people together on his terms the way he wants. He has people that he can deal with. Christians who are sincere about taking up a cross every day and dying to all this personal stuff and getting rid of all the things that divide us. 
Remember 1 Corinthians 1, there was a group that said, I'm of Paul and I'm of Peter and I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Christ. They came together for the Lord's Supper and they wouldn't even speak to each other. Paul said, I praise you not. This is not what God is doing. You've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in your church. You've got gifts of healings in your church and people are dying sick. Because the problem is that, that you're not discerning the Lord's body. You don't see it as you should. It's what God has put you in. You're a part of it. You have a role to play in it. You have a responsibility to other people in it. Church is not where you go on Sunday morning to feel better about yourself. It's what you're a part of. It's supposed to have meaning and purpose for us. Our life, mine is, I hope yours is too, is all wrapped up in what's going on right now. Now, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And what does he say that each one of these parts need? In order for us to fit together in Philippians 2 and verse 3, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded. Can that be possible? Is that possible? All right, now let me tell you why it can be possible. Now, again, I, I get off. This is why it takes me so long to preach a simple short sermon because I get off on these tangents, but I like this because it's a moment of teaching. The only thing common to all of us in here besides breathing and taxes, the only thing common to us and sin is Jesus Christ. The only thing that can give any purpose to our life that has true eternal meaning is Jesus. Everything else is just idealism, and it's just philosophy, it's something else, but it has no purpose to it. It's momentary and temporary, but this is eternal. And the only way this can be realized is that we be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. See, I have to see things differently than I've seen it my whole life. I didn't grow up liking you. I didn't. I really didn't. I didn't grow up liking you. I liked who I liked. Then God saved me. He put me beside you. So here we are. Iron sharpens iron. We'll teach you that when you get older. But anyway, iron sharpens iron. The only way I can ever see my role in life with you is for God to show me that. I have to see what he's saying. And not only do I have to see what he's saying, but I have to have a pliable heart that wants to yield to that. I want to give up who I am so that I can be what he wants. Because if I stay like I am, he's going to judge me. He has to. He's righteous. But a righteous God has given me a way out of judgment. He gives me a revelation. He's shown me something. He said, Hamilton, you got a lot of problems. And I said, really? Yeah. I said, look at him. Boo, I see him. These problems are preventing you from being useful in my body. You're a troublemaker in the church. People don't like you. You're hard to get along with. You're loud, mouthy, and opinionated, and, and you're difficult, and you're a hindrance to my work. I don't want to judge you for that. I want you to change. Then one day, God has a way of changing people. You know, he can make you contrite. He can run you through that machine when you come out the other side. Man, you are lowly. But that's the way you got to be if you're going to fit into what he's doing. Like-minded. My mind has to be renewed. So does yours. This is the only thing that's going to make us one. 
This is how we become as he is. I got to give up all this stuff that's not right and recompute it with the stuff that is right. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am, I'm tough and I'm bad. No, he said, I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest into your souls. So whatever I'm learning about him is going to change me like that. Whatever work he's doing in my life is going to tend to make me like that. Because if I'm not like that, how can I relate to you? I can stand here and preach to you. I still don't like you. You know what I mean, in the old way. But when God begins to change you, begins to change me, there's real meaning to all of this. There's a holy design to all of this. There's something that you can put up with. They can fuss at you, call your names, belittle you, and you can take it. Why? Because God is changing. Don't we sing a song, he's changing me? My blessed, you know, something like that. But this is how we become one. We have to let him become what we want, and we must surrender to that. And if we are all doing that, let me ask you something. Is the real true Christ in you, if he's in you, and Christ is in me, what's the difference between us? If we yield to him, nothing. Would we not all be one? We'll finish Philippians 2 there. Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love. Wow. Being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Are you kidding me? That lazy person? Yes, that lazy person. Let each esteem others as better than themselves. How would I act towards you if that really worked in me? What kind of person would I be if I was like that? I didn't say you were. I said if I was, what kind of person would I be? Would I fight you? Would I gossip about you? Would I slander you in any way? Would I get in your face? Uh-uh, I used to, but I don't do that anymore. Why? Because my mind is being renewed. There's a stirring and a shaking that God brings into a person's life. We can't go to heaven the other way. You don't live like a dog down here chasing cars your whole life, and then one day get to heaven, and he runs you through heaven's machine, and okay, you're ready for heaven. You do that now. That's why Jesus said, I don't want him to go out of the world. I want him to stay in the world. And we say, but the world is a habitation of dragons. The world lies in evil, Lord. It's full of darkness. Why are you leaving us here? Because I want to make you perfect. What's that mean? Well, you have to be still, and I'll teach you. It's a mystery to so many people because to most people, church is just where you hire somebody for 10 shekels and a shirt to preach to you a couple times a week. Bury the old folks, marry the young folks, balance the budget, direct the choir, and keep everybody happy. Stay as long as you want. But Jesus said, no, what I'm doing is more than that. I'm making disciples, but I have to change them all. I have to break them all down. I have to empty all of them. I got to take what they brought to me, and I got to empty it. I got to get all that old way out of there, and I have to... Fill it with myself so that it can be Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
greater would be he that is in me. And, and he must increase and I must decrease. There's a change that's supposed to be taking place, a transformation. I'm becoming something that I haven't been. Not because I'm clever, but because he's showing me a way he wants me to live. God is beginning to do an individual work because if he doesn't do an individual work, I won't be a part of a together work. You see, everybody must have a relationship to God where God speaks to you, God ministers to you. You can't have a relationship if he doesn't. Religion is this way. We have a perception of ourselves. We pray because we read in the Bible we should. The bumper sticker said so. Prayer changes things. The family that prays together stays together. Didn't know what it said. So we pray because, well, we don't know much about God, but we can read. And as far as this other person is over here, you're supposed to esteem others as better than yourself. Now you're getting a little too much there because you're supposed to have this and have this too. And we're supposed to be held together by something here. Remember that? See, these are stones, living stones. If you don't have this, here's the things you have. I'm going to draw this for you, and maybe some of you can see it, some of you can't. See, here's what you have. That's a pile of rocks. That's a pile of rocks. These rocks came from some evangelistic meeting. Yeah, the evangelist said, turn or burn. And, man, you, your sins were exposed. You came to the Lord. Oh, God, save me. And he did. And what God saved was a rock. Now, it's not very good for building because it's got so many problems that keep it from connecting with other rocks. I'm a rock. I'm a rock. I don't need nobody. I can make it by myself. God's in me and all that. So... That's what you get. You get a pile of rocks, and every town has a pile of rocks. Now, you can put a little things on top to show that they're a religious rock pile, a little cross up there. <laughs> so you got this all over, see. It doesn't flow together. It doesn't function well together. And every now and then, it has a split because they just don't like the way something's done, what is said, and they vote. And, you know, anytime you vote, you're asking for division, anytime. Anytime you vote, you're asking for division, which is the opposite of what God wants. So you got all these rock piles, but I'm assuming here that there's been some work done on you. That's a chisel, a little fat chisel. <laughs> Sometimes about that long. And to make a chisel work, you have a hammer, don't you? The chisel is like what the teacher does. You know, you get this pile of rocks, you give them to the pastor. Look, pastor, we got 10 new converts. And he says, thank you. Because <laughs> they're sitting there and they're difficult and they don't want to mind. They don't want to behave or late, come in and lazy. And here they come in and you think, and I'm talking this morning. I don't mean to magnify anything about preachers, but it is a labor of love because it'd be real easy to quit and give up. Most preachers last five years. It's not worth it. People just don't want to respond. So here comes a teacher, preacher, pastors, and teachers, and they set you down there. And, okay, you got your Bibles this morning? Yeah, all right, hold still. This is going to hurt. Chihuahua! <laughs> and then you get a little whimpering noise, a little. <laughs> and then a whisper. 
did you tell him I was coming? <laughs> and pow, a little chip start flying off. You ever seen anybody try to break a brick just right so a little half brick can fit? I watched a guy do that one day, and he was putting bricks over a garage door, and there was a pile of broken bricks down there. And he would hold that little chisel just right and kind of tap around. If it broke wrong, he couldn't use it because it didn't fit. And I was sitting there watching him, waiting on somebody going in his house. And I was watching him, and the Lord said, and the impression I had was that that's the way it is with my people. They don't want to do it my way, and they become difficult, and it's hard to adjust them because they don't want to be adjusted. They want to be religious. They want comfort and happiness. They want a quiet, quick service. They want to get out of here without any intrusion of some preacher's opinions on them. And so consequently, a lot of stones that are in the process of being like this here, and I've watched it for 40 years, a lot of them quit. It's not worth it. Other people quit. Once we had a big church, now you got a little church. Everybody knows who you are now. All your mistakes are printed up in the newspaper each week. And you don't want to go through that kind of harassment and persecution. So they quit. The Bible said they quit because of that. You stay with it. And this work keeps taking place until we got this smooth stone here. But boy, this smooth stone still has a lot of wasps in it. Wood, hay, and stubble. And we're told you have to purge yourself of this because it doesn't seem to affect my relationship with you because I, if I've never really known the Lord in a personal way, I don't know if he's there or not. But it's affecting my relationship with other people. So God has to do a deep work, a convicting work, sometimes chastising work on us because he wants us to be like the chief cornerstone. He wants us to be like him. That's what he wants us to be like. And so this work in verse 16 in Ephesians 4, he said that this work is going to take place in verse 16 so that the body can be fitly joined together, properly joined together, compacted by what? By that which every joint supplies. See these two rocks brought together? This is a joint. <laughs> this is a joint. Not a place you go to drink bad stuff, not something you smoke. This is a joint. It's where two pieces come together. Now, they so easily split and they start other churches and they so easily have wars and fight. What is it the Bible speaks of holds these two joints together? We know in the building process it's called mortar. But what is it that holds them together in the Bible? Well, listen at this. I'm going to read this to you in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Wouldn't it be nice if it was like that with all of us? You would look forward to getting here, especially on time, if it was like that. You would. It would be a haven of rest, a peaceful environment where God inhabits praise because we want to praise. Oh, it'd be glorious. And it would be enjoyable if we were like that. 
kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, putting up with each other, forgiving each other. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do you. And above all these things, verse 14, he said, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. You know what love is? Remember I told you last week what love was? Love is this word right here. It is C-O-M-M-I-T-M-E-N-T. If love is not that, it's not love. God so loved you that he committed himself and his son to the shedding of his blood and dying on a cross so that you could be saved and nothing could keep him from doing it. Commitment. If you love your husband, like Charlotte here is going to get married shortly. If she loves her husband, she commits herself to him, not because he deserves it, but because God wants it. And he commits himself to her <laughs> because God requires that. And along their journey of becoming one, it's a type picture of the church. Remember Ephesians 6, a picture of the church? I speak of the church. As they're becoming one, they have conflicts. I guarantee you they have conflicts. And she'll want to stomp, shut the door, slam the door, make her voice a little loud, or he might want to do that. But the reason they don't just give up and quit like most are doing today is because as Christians, they made a commitment to love you. Now, I don't love you because you deserve it. I love God more than I love you, and it's because of God I love you. That's why I love you. And we're going to grow old together, me and you. Let me tell you something. Even if you leave me, you depart from me and go wherever you want to go, I'm not giving up my commitment. I'll hold the fort down until God brings you back. Because my commitment to God is greater than my feelings, my emotions, or your antics and your foolishness. Where are these people? Where are these folks today? Where are people that are so in tune with the Lord and willing to love him that they're willing to commit themselves to each other? To love you, to be humble, to have your best interest, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, seek others' needs even before your own? Where are these people? They're in the kingdom. Well, I haven't been in very many churches like that. Well, tares are growing in the church too. Not everything that says, Lord, Lord's going to heaven. They're growing together. But they will manifest themselves at harvest time, the wheat will. Malachi said, I heard two different classes of people talk. The righteous spoke and the unrighteous spoke. And God was listening. And the gap is widening between those who are and those who aren't in this last day. More and more. More and more. But going on from Ephesians 4, he said in chapter 6, 27, a glorious church without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. Can you see this this morning? Can you see that if I'm willing to commit myself to your well-being and love you because of God, and if I'm willing to put up with you and forgive you that God's going to change you too and bring us together, can you see how that God is so affecting me and my relationship with him that it, because of him I want to do this? Yes. 
Who can you not forgive if God forgave you of all that trash in your life? He forgave me of more than anybody in this room. I'm chief of sinners. And I think, who would I be to not forgive anybody? Is all the stuff that God forgave me of. I deserve death in a deep, dark place. And here I am forgiven. Wow. Well, see, that's got to be more than just words. That's got to be your life. That's got to be how you see other people. That's got to be how you feel about other people. This, this is what God is doing. It's a relationship that's making this happen. This is what's going on. This relationship to God brings purity and holiness in your life. And all of this foolishness, all this crazy looks and dress and music today, that really is a turnoff. Because it doesn't glorify anybody except man, people and flesh. Now turn to back to John 17 again. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 22, in light of what I just said about us being built together and, and becoming one and this tedious work, difficult work that is taking place in the altering of human souls, of human corrupted minds to become Christ-like, what a difficult task. Only God can do it. But he said, and the glory, Lord, he said, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Why? That there may be unity, that they may be one. Now, in what way does the glory that Jesus had to give God in Psalm 84 says that he giveth grace and glory. So God has it to give. Jesus said he gave it here. And the Holy Spirit will also make it happen. We'll see that in just a moment. How is it that this word glory can have a unifying effect or make us one? That's how I study. I study like that. In what way does the word glory or whatever is meant here by glory, how can that make Shelbyville Christian Assembly or true believers anywhere, how can that make us one? Because he said, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given unto them that they may be one. Well, as we often have to do in dealing with subjects like this, you have to start with definitions. What is meant by glory? What does the word glory mean? And it's such an oft-used word in the Bible has so many varied applications, it doesn't just mean one thing. We may have a picture of glory as just something that is just overwhelmingly tremendous in, in its splendor and its appearance. That would be good. That's glory. God's light, the light of God, in the Old Testament called the Shekinah. That was a glory. You know, Paul in Acts twenty-two eleven, Paul said, the light of his glory shone about me on the Damascus road when he was converted. So the, the light of his glory was simply his radiance. When Moses came off the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because he was shining. He had been in the presence of God for 40 days, and he was glowing himself. The glory of the Lord was all about him. Philippians 3, verse 9, speaks about the glory of their shame, which is a boast of man about what man does and what man is doing. 
People boast all the time about how bad they are, how much they did, or what they can do. And, and the Bible describes such boasting shameful. But he said their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. Or the word glory can apply to the kingdoms of the world. Remember the temptation the devil said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8? He said, if you will bow to me, he said, the glory of all these kingdoms I will give to you. And glory would be the majesty, the wealth, the power, the prestige, the honor. You'd be Mr. Wonderful. The whole world be yours. That would describe all of that personal attainment and possession to be glory. It's not a spiritual thing, but it's a, the word glory would apply like that. The word glory can also refer to in a kingdom of man of all of its wealth. And remember Solomon, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, he said Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So glory describes, again, in various applications, wide application, glory describes things that are above and beyond ordinary, something that is tremendous. Heaven is a glorious place, a place of glory that God wants to bring us to. Jesus is called in Hebrews 1.3, the brightness of his glory. This is how the Bible, in so many, 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 many ways, uses the word glory. It can refer to honor and dignity. It can refer to splendor and brightness and majesty. Mainly, though, for us as Christians, this word glory describes the perfections of God. Who he is, as best we can imagine him or know him to be. His attributes, his holiness his righteousness, even his solitariness. He needs nothing, needs nobody. He is complete within himself. He didn't need a world, didn't need you. He has no needs. Or his goodness, or his kindness, his faithfulness. And when you begin to examine the, these attributes in the Bible, you begin to see God is so far above any of us that we can wonder how could such a person have anything to do with us. Even the psalmist said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You are beyond my words. Now, if you have that revelation, not everybody sees that. For a lot of people, it's just like taking a little test and filling in the blanks. God is, God is, God is, God is. But when the reality of it, the meaning of it is revealed to you. Oh, man. Let me define glory at the beginning as this. The glory of God is a revelation of God's perfections. Revelation of God's perfections, a revelation knowledge that you will never give up, that will completely and eternally change your life. It is something that only God gives that he does give to some that has such an overwhelming impact upon your life that you are never again the same. You never look back, you never go back, and you live on his terms. You live Christ-like. Your hunger and your thirst is for God. Your desire is for him. 
Whom have I in heaven? The psalmist said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth that I desire besides thee. Jesus said, If a man loves me and totally committed to me, he puts me before his mother, his father, even his own life, his wife, his own family. He puts nothing before God. God has that much of an impact on his life. And the effect of that revelation is glorious. That's the glory that God shows. No man could know Jesus except Jesus revealed himself to them. And to every man in the Bible that Jesus was revealed to, and they saw him in that spiritual sense, they never went back. The apostles began changing the world. They couldn't bribe them. You couldn't make them recant. And they carried a revelation that Jesus gave to them. They carried a revelation into all the world. And with passion and completeness, they laid it to people who wanted it. Not everybody did, but to whoever who wanted it, you did. And they brought it to us. And God sent ministry into the world to do the same thing, to reveal Jesus. Not the newest movement out there, the newest spiked hair creations and talking about Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, him and him alone. And everything else that you allow yourself to do springs from what is pleasing to him. What if we were like that? Is this such a high and lofty idea that it cannot be attained? Or is it possible that you can be like Christ? The measure of the stature Growing up into him and all that. Is it possible? Remember John 1, 14, And the word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son. Most unique, one of a kind, nobody else like that. Even everybody that was around him said there's something about him. I don't know what it is, but there is something about Jesus that makes everything else pale in the light of it. I can tell you that it, through the years, you know, I, growing up in sports, being a basketball coach and, and having a passion for that kind of stuff, and then getting saved and all of that, as God began to show me more of him, I had wanted less of that. You think, well, how could you walk away from it? Well, in the natural, it would have been very difficult. But in the spiritual realm, as you begin to see what you're going for and what was holding you back, it was easy to let go of all that stuff. Walk away from it. As we sing the song, I've found a new way of living. I found a new life, divine. This is what's supposed to happen to all of us here. Church is not just someplace you go because you made a decision once. You want to feel better about yourself, but you're not living right. It's where we change. It's where the message the Lord gives to change. It's where the challenge comes. I don't know what people without a body of believers, I don't know what they do. I don't know. I'm seeing a lot of changes happen to a lot of people. I mean, they're going back to the old ways, like in mass. I think, what happened to your supposed, your confessed revelation of who he was back 30 years? What happened to that? Did you really have one? Did he ever show himself to you in such a way that you've never forsaken it? I know a lot of people that never forsook it. I don't care who dies or who flies, they never forsook it. Where are those people today? 
Where is the gloriousness of a man's salvation? The thing you wouldn't part with, for you would die first. You lay down your life for it. Where is this today? Have we had no revelation? Has no glorious revelation of God been given to us about Christ that has so impacted our life that we are forever changed? Or are we just trying to change? We're trying to do better. I'm trying to quit drugs and sex and corruption. I'm trying to, I mean, I'm having a hard time. Where is the deep and true conversion we spoke of a few weeks ago? Where is it today? Where are those souls whose whole life is about Jesus? It's not hard to pray and speak to Jesus when you have that. You don't have to assign yourself some, well, I better pray. No, it becomes a relationship. It's a walking, talking relationship that you have with somebody you've never seen. You've never heard that voice before. But this relationship, this thing is such a deep thing that all this trash that used to be in your life, you get it out. It's little by little. Well, let me show you how that works. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because this is a way, as far as I know and understand, this is how this works. This is how this all comes about. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul wrote to us in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said, Whereunto he has called you by our gospel to the obtaining of his glory. Listen to it again. He has called you by our gospel to the obtaining of his glory. Well, how can I obtain it if I don't know what it is? I can't get something. I don't know what you're talking about. Is that still in the Bible? Teach me thy way, O Lord, that, that I may walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Make me to do your will. What would happen to all of us here this morning if this was happening now to all of us? What would happen to us all, wherever you folks are from? I'm especially talking to you folks that are here. What would happen to us? What would this place be like? It may not grow. A lot of people don't want to get into something that deep. But you better be serious. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Sold a piece of land. How much did you get? Big sap. I got about 20,000. Oh, 20,000. Well, let's give them 15. We better hold back a little for the day that rains hard. Dear, we got some money. We sold our land. We give it here. How much? 15000 Is that what you got? Yep. Why have you lied to the Holy Ghost, they said, and fell dead? Fell dead. You know what the Bible goes on to say? No man durst join himself to that group. <laughs> you know why? If you want to walk with him... You walk with him on his terms. You got to be honest. You got to be sincere. Honesty hurts. But there's forgiveness in honesty. Liars and deceivers are bound to that dark place as long as they hold to their lies. It'd be true with you too if you're like that. Well, there's forgiveness in honesty. 
there's something clean that can come forth out of an honest soul. But back to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a mirror, what? It's what we're talking about, the glory of the Lord, are being changed. It says, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So God not only gives glory, Jesus said he has glory to give, and the Spirit is the one who said he'll bring it about. Isn't that right? He said, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what's going on here? Listen to this translation. I don't promote these things, but this is a Williams translation. He said, and all of us with faces uncovered because we continue to reflect like mirrors the splendor of the Lord are being transformed into likeness to him from one degree of splendor to another since it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Then here's another translation. I'm not even sure why. I think it's an English standard. But it says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're looking at a verse here that tells us that, I'm going to take it like this, that the Word of God is like a mirror, a glass. A shiny, real shiny something. You know, you look at to comb your hair and look at yourself. A mirror. And he said, as we look into this mirror, it reveals something to us, doesn't it? Now, I see in a mirror who I am. I wish a mirror would lie a little bit or at least bend a little bit, but it doesn't. That mirror is just absolutely brutal. And a lot of people, I look at a lot of people walking around on the streets of America don't own mirrors. They need one. You look in that mirror, and you read some of these verses that make you uncomfortable. Talk about husbands and wives and how they should relate and kids to their parents and to each other, how we should not be hateful and ugly. And we begin to read these things, and immediately the Spirit of God begins at work in our mind, and we see how we have been like that. If we've been sitting in church for 25 years, and we're still doing that. And well, we're looking at these things that bring what we call a conviction. And you listen to some of these things and you're going, oh man, why did I come this morning? I came last week. That was Easter. And here I am again. And you start getting bothered. I'm talking about how God deals with us. If you don't ever get bothered in, by your life and by all this stuff in your life, then you're never going to change. If all we ever did was tell you how lovely you are, we're so glad you came, God bless you. Now just shake hands and go home. You're going to heaven. We'll see you next week. If that's all you ever did, you never would deal with your life. You never would deal with your life. But God sends that word. It's like a mirror. It not only shows you what he is saying, but as you look at it, you see what you're not in light of that. And you get bothered by it if you ever change. If you ever change to be like he wants you to be, you'll yield to that. Oh, God, I see myself. Oh, I hate what I'm seeing. Well, you should. You should hate what you're seeing because God has to judge it unless you're willing to give it up. Unless you're willing to do something about it. It's like God saying, you got to deal with that. If you don't deal with that, Levi, if you don't deal with it, I will. 
Now, would you rather deal with it or would you rather God deal with you about it? I would say this, Lord, I'll deal with it. Don't you deal with me because I, oh man, I can't talk you out of anything. It's like God saying, either you come down or I'm going to bring you down. A loving God gives you the opportunity to do it yourself. Deal with it. Obey my voice and so forth. And if you won't, because he loves you, because he chose you for his kingdom, and he is going to refine you in the fires. He says, all right, Levi, would God ever chastise his people? Only, only, only the ones he loves. This may be a hard statement for a lot of people. God isn't committed to everybody in this world. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus said in John 17, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those thou hast given me. Do you think he's going to leave those people alone? He's going to wear you out. Hard-headed, stubborn people like myself, it's been going on for a long time. I've been a crybaby for 30 years. Just getting my tears dried up a little bit now. My little granddaughter ran across the yard yesterday over at the game farm where grandparents take kids to burn energy. <laughs> Running across the yard from feeding the geese, the gooseys. And just running and fell down in the grass. You've got a little grass thing and you would have thought it was a major affliction. And I think, it's amazing the way the Lord speaks to you. And I look back and I kept going. I let her lay there and cry because she wasn't hurt. <laughs> Yourself. <laughs> Has it ever happened to you? You ever felt like God just let you alone? What do you say, Peter? The devil hath desired thee that he might what? You ever felt like that? Did God stop him from sifting? No, God was watching. He ain't right. Well, it is right. Something's going to come out of this. It's going to be for your good and for my good. I think, you know, I've been crying like a little girl. There wasn't nothing wrong with her. There wasn't nothing wrong with me. The next thing you know, it's over. Because they're only for a moment. That's chapter four. It's just momentary. Back in this verse. He said, beholding as in a mirror. Now, what does beholding mean? Behold means to regard, to look at with attention. I really want to get this. I really want to understand this. If a husband was having a problem with his wife, if a wife was having trouble with her husband, and they both agreed to have a civil, meaningful conversation, would they listen? Yes, say yes. And he says, this is my complaint with you. This is my problem I'm having with our relationship. And she's wounded. She said, oh, give me a major break. Let me tell you, you got four, I got two hands. No, that ain't what she would say. She might. But they listen. If they're really committed to each other, They'll deal with what they have heard so that that won't be an accusation tomorrow. Because it's worth fixing. 
And your relationship with God means that he often speaks to us in meetings like this about things that we really don't appreciate because I don't want to deal with that, but you've got to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, he's going to chastise you. Whom the Lord receiveth, he chastiseth and scourges every son that he receives. Every one that he receives, he changes. And he does it like this. As the Spirit of God says in verse 18, as we behold in a mirror, our attention is upon what he is saying. Meaningful thought. What do we see? We begin to see him. We begin to see ourselves, his attributes. And hopefully we look at it long enough until we say, who is like unto thee, O Lord among the gods? Who is like unto thee? Thank you. Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, who's like unto thee. Do you think if you really saw it, not just memorized it, but saw it, would it affect your life? You would realize there is no sin in your life you're getting by with. There's no ugly word you're talking about that's not being recorded. God is at all times everywhere. God doesn't have to go anywhere to be there. He is always there. He is spirit. And it covers the depths of the sky to the earth beneath. Even in a satellite going around the orbit around the earth. How high are they? 100 miles above the earth? And it's so far up there that the earth looks like a, just a big ball. Man, you think of the holy city, it's going to be 1,500 miles high. That's going to be quite an experience. 1,500-mile cube. The city of God in eternity. Yes. Anyway, let me get back there. He's going to be changed into the same image. Beholding as in a mirror, God make me look, make me listen. Forbid that I have eyes to see and can't see. God forbid that I have ears that can hear but don't hear. God forbid that I not understand what you're saying and not have any interest. Who has interest in Christ? Who in the church, not the world, but who in the church, Christian world, to whom does Christ have great meaning? He doesn't change your lives. They're still as rowdy and rambunctious and foolish as they ever were. Who loves him enough to regard him with your life? Who? Well, his own will. He says it again in verse 18, we are being changed. As we behold, only as we're beholding are we being changed. If we're not beholding, we're not changing. Amen. Would you agree? Amen. You don't have to agree, but I'm just asking you a question. As we behold, we are being. Now, English wasn't my strong point, and I don't care if it was. But I can understand this much. As he said, as we behold an action on my part concerning what is to be beheld. Pretty heady, isn't it? <laughs> as I do this, I, he initiates a work in me so that I am becoming like what I'm being shown. The image of Christ. Isn't it what it said? Christ is the very glory of God. And he's changing you into what you're seeing. If 
if you look. And he does this from glory to glory. It's a work that has to take place. Christ comes forth. He's planted like a seed. You receive Christ into your heart and your life is like a little seed planted in your spirit. You're alive unto God now. You're born again. And this seed is supposed to grow. And when we still fight, fuss, and act ugly, nothing's going on. We suppress it. No wonder Paul wrote in Galatians 4.19, he said, Oh, my little children, how I travail over you until Christ be formed in you. You think because you go to church, held up your hand, got baptized, it's over? He said, I pray that Christ be formed in you, that he comes forth in you, that he begins to dominate by your willing consent, your yielded consent to him, he begins to dominate your life. It begins to change you. And he does this as he ended at verse 13, say, from glory to glory. The word glory to glory describes the effect of this growth, this transforming work that it has on us. It's like that time you went to church and you learned something you'd never seen. You had a revelation, something about the word or about your life that you'd never seen. And you went, praise God. Now, is that to you a glorious revelation? It was wonderful. It couldn't have come any other way than by God, and he gave it to you. Wow! And boy, you made a big adjustment in your life. Have you arrived? No, you've just taken a step of growth. So he does it again. You come hungry, he feeds. You get fed, you go, yes! Praise God! Man, thank you, Jesus! Hallelujah! Some say, well, you're a little bit over with that, a little bit overboard. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm getting free. He's setting me free. I begin to see things I've never seen before. I've been a deadheaded, loudmouth my whole life. Principals were glad when I graduated from high school. Oh, they were. And the teachers passed me just so I wouldn't have to be retained. Get him on. And now Jesus comes along and he begins to change you and you begin to see what you've never seen before. And he even gives you a desire to have what you've never had before. And you taste and you see that the Lord is good. Oh, Jesus. And you grow from glory to glory to glory. Now, when the Spirit does this, let me show you a couple things as we close. And how he does this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are. Now let me see. Time out. What is suffering? What is suffering? What is the purpose of sufferings in light of his glory and our unity? Because you've got to put that together because we're on a subject this, this has got to fit with. Or we've got a disjointed message. We want to have union with Christ. And this union is going to make us one. He gives us the word. We must behold the word as this activity of the Holy Spirit to transform us into the image that we're looking at, the transfiguration, same word. We're being transformed into something that God wants that we're just looking at. And he does this little bit by little bit by little bit. It's a stage of growth. And the more we change, the less we look back. The more we start getting in that deeper place, the less we complain about, it's too hard, it's too hot. Well, I got that, I'm busy. 
Not anymore. I'm not that busy. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, he said, are not worthy to be compared to what? Does your Bible in Romans 8.18 say that? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed uh, in my neighbor. Or did he say in us? Wait a minute. Let me start all over again so I can stop. In bringing us into this place that we're talking about, Paul says, now concerning the difficulty of living this life and not giving up and not quitting, the chastisement, the persecution, the, the harassment, the slander and the abuse and being rejected and scorned and put out and spoken of as evil and all of that. He said, I reckon that what we're going through is a test to see just how meaningful this is to us, whether we'll give up or not. And it is that. And this willingness to stay with God is making me suffer. All I got to do to quit suffering is quit going to this church. Quit listening to that kind of message. Go where I can kick back and take it easy. Get me a little Kool-Aid or whatever people drink today. And relax. God knows we're just flesh. He knows we're not perfect. He knows we can't do nothing. He knows we, and he knows. Just live with it. Come on, man. Come on. But I traded that all in for something that's getting me hammered. Remember when I was teaching school, those teachers, one of them just kept picking on me. Just kept picking on me. One day after I fussed at him pretty good, I think I told him shut up or something. And I had after school was out in front of other coaches, I had to tell him I was sorry for what I said. I said, what's the matter? You getting convicted? Hmm. <laughs> You want to play a little one-on-one? I like to elbow you right in the side of your head. You can't do that no more. God puts you in places where you suffer persecution. You're treated with scorn, slander. People say things about you that aren't true. People gossip about you to other people and hold you in a light. That's not fair because it's not true, but you got to take it. Just like Jesus as a lamb who was led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. This is God's changing time in our life. And we're not trying to get out of this. And I'm not trying to justify myself if I have to just bow your head and take it. Let them talk. God is testing you and showing others what he's doing in your life. And he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, I suffer because of what I believe, because of the stands that I take. And I reckon that those sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with what God is going to reveal in me. You know what it was? The glory. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And the next verse I'll use next week is the next verse I want you to just briefly turn to. Second Corinthians. Come on. You paid a whole lot of money for that Bible. You need to learn to use it. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 17. This is how God describes what we're going through. For our light affliction. One translation says our light momentary affliction. 
Because it is for a moment. It is for a little while. It's not forever. Are you going to heaven? You going to take that affliction with you? I doubt it. But he said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us. Is there something being done in Christian affliction? I'm not talking about judgment here where you open your mouth and God's judging you for it. You can call it a trial if you want to, but it's not. I'm talking about when you are living a life and you're suffering because of it. He said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of what? Glory. Mm, that sounds interesting too. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would minister to us, teach us, deal with us, show us, manifest to us. Everything it takes for us to lay down the old, pick up the cross, and walk in the new. I do believe, Heavenly Father, this morning that if your people who are called by your name, the ones who profess you, if they were willing to live what you're saying, we would be a glorious church. Our praise would be a place where the Lord abides. It would be a place where great peace comes and your people go home glad and your neighbors would know that you've been with the Lord. I ask in the name of Jesus that you would do this work that I'm talking about here, not only in this assembly, but those who are visiting and those who listen electronically. Leave none of us out, Lord. Make us to be what you want. And for those folks here this morning who are standing on the edge of gloom and difficulty, Lord, just do a work today, something. Turn them back with joy to continue on the King's Highway to Zion. I ask you to do all of this because I know you can. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.